part of it is like justice for the rest of us who weren't those things and still had to deal with a version of that. You're listening to Burnt Toast. This is the podcast about anti-fat bias, diet culture, parenting, and health. I'm Virginia Soul Smith. Today, I am so delighted to be chatting with Crystal Maldonado. Crystal is a young adult author who writes inclusive stories about fat brown girls. She is the author of Fat Chance Charlie Vega, which was a New England Book Award winner and a Kirkus Best YA Fiction of 2021, No Filter and Other Lies, which was named a Pop Sugar and 17 Best New YA, and her latest book is The Fall of Whit Rivera, which we're going to talk about today. Crystal's books explore body politics, Latina and queer identity, relationships, complex family dynamics, and love. So we're going to get into her new book, which I especially love because it features a protagonist who is navigating PCOS and life with a chronic condition that makes all sorts of things about bodies more complicated, while also just trying to be a normal teenage girl and planning her fall fest and having an awesome time. So that is really fun and really important. We're also going to get into Britney Spears, which just doesn't fit into anything except I needed to talk about Britney Spears to someone and Crystal is who you do that with. And then because Crystal is so very awesome, I asked her to stick around for an extended butter segment where we have a bunch of amazing recs that you may want for yourself, but you will definitely find useful if you are shopping for any tweens or young adult fans in general. You will need to be a paid subscriber to get all the good recs and links in the transcript. So click the link in your episode description or go to virginiasoulsmith.substack.com to join us. Here's Crystal, but first a quick break. So I want to pause and tell you about the Burnt Toast Bookshop. If you're a regular listener, you've heard me shout out my beloved independent bookstore, Split Rock Books, a million times. Split Rock is owned by my friends Heidi and Michael Bender and they have the most perfect shop cat named Georgie. And they are now the official hosts of the Burnt Toast Bookshop. To be clear, this is not a real brick and mortar bookstore, but it is its own official section over on their website, splitrockbks.com, where you can find every book we've ever recommended on the podcast. This includes every author I've interviewed from Angela Garbez to Aubrey Gordon to Crystal Maldonado, who you'll hear from in this episode. And it also includes collections of picture books, parenting books, books on puberty and aging, and every other topic that comes up here. And if you order your copy of Fat Talk from Split Rock, you can use the code FATTALK at checkout to take 10% off your order of anything in the Burnt Toast Bookshop. They ship everywhere in the United States, and they are the only place where you can get a book signed with any inscription you want by me. So this is just a win-win-win. It's a chance to support an amazing independent bookstore that gives so much to my community to get yourself or someone you love a signed copy of Fat Talk, plus a 10% discount on a huge list of other incredible books. And we are always updating the shop. Click the link in your episode description or go to splitrockbks.com slash burnt toast bookstore. Thank you so much for supporting independent body liberation journalism and independent bookstores. Hi, Crystal. It is so great to have you back on Burnt Toast. Hi, I'm so excited to be back. It must mean you liked me last time. So I'm <laughs> really, I'm really excited. Okay, so for any folks who missed your first episode, of course, I will link that in the transcript. But why don't you just quickly introduce yourself? 
So I am Crystal Maldonado. I'm a young adult author who writes rom-coms for fat brown girls. So my debut novel was called Fat Chance Charlie Vega. That came out in 2021. And it followed the story of Charlie, who was a 16-year-old girl who had never been kissed before. And so her whole story was about trying to get that first kiss, falling in love for the first time, and learning to love and appreciate her body, her fat body, for what it was. And then I also wrote No Filter and Other Lies, which came out in 2022. So this was another young adult story, but it followed a 17-year-old named Kat Sanchez, who was also Puerto Rican, also fat. But she had a lot going on in terms of she was drawn to catfishing and the life of just lying. And so that was a fun one. She really goes on a journey. She really does. Yeah, she gets into some stuff. (laughs) Yeah, it's complicated. But there are lots of dogs, so that, like, adds the wholesome factor where her story otherwise could be a little dicey. (laughs) And then most recently, I wrote The Fall of Whit Rivera, which just came out in October 2023. And this tells the story of Whit Rivera, who is a 17-year-old fat Puerto Rican girl who is obsessed with fall, and she's just coming off of a really tough summer and has vowed to make her fall semester the best one ever. And so she's hoping to plan her school's homecoming dance, which they call the Fall Fest, but then all kind of goes sideways when she gets paired up with her ex-boyfriend to do the planning. And oh no, he's kind of cute. Really <laughs> so, cute. Yeah. So, Can confirm, not in a creepy way. Me. Yeah, in a <laughs> cute way, like in an acceptable in a, like, way. Imagining myself as a teenager while reading the book. Now I'm making it weird. Exactly. <laughs> So yes, so I write those books. I'm also in higher ed marketing for my day job. I'm a mom. I have a four-year-old. I'm a wife. I have a dog. I love glitter. I love Beyonce. I think that about covers it. So I do want to talk a little more about Wit since she is the newest in the crystal canon. As you said, she's starting her senior year. She wants everything to be perfect. So those of us who are sort of compulsive overachievers can relate to her journey. But she's also dealing with this new diagnosis of PCOS, Mm -hmm. polycystic ovarian syndrome. I don't think I've ever seen a novel about a character with PCOS, let alone a young adult novel. Like, this is amazing. Oh, well, thank you. Yeah. I don't want to say this is the first because I don't know for sure, but I hadn't read a novel or, like you said, a young adult novel that focused on this illness ever, really. And I was diagnosed with polycystic ovarian syndrome when I was 16 years old. And I just think about how much of a difference a story like this could have made in my life if I had been exposed to something like this and if I felt like it wasn't just me that had (laughs) PCOS. And so that was really a driving force behind this story. Like, of course, I wanted to write another romance. Of course, there's the autumn aspect and all of the fun, like fall apple picking and all of that. And so there's a lot of fun and joy, but I also wanted this story to have something a little bit more to it. And so for wit that comes in the form of this chronic illness that is technically invisible, nobody can see it by looking at her, but it definitely affects her daily life. And she as you said, just got the diagnosis. And that's kind of what derailed a lot of her summer was because she spent all of this time going to these doctor's appointments and figuring out how is she going to deal with the symptoms that she's sort of been seeing pop up? And does she want to tell her friends? And what does this mean for her daily life? So it gets complicated very quickly for her. Yeah. And it just feels so important. I mean, like, 
I'm a 42-year-old who deals with a lot of facial hair in my life, and I find it, like, awkward to talk about and navigate. A 16-year-old dealing with that is, like, I just want to hug her. Like, it's just, like, so vulnerable, (laughs) and there's so little understanding for it. Obviously, like, facial hair is not the most important part of PCOS, but I kind of think when you're 16, it feels like it's— Oh, totally. And for Wit, there is this scene very early on where she's already kind of had, like, this terrible phone call with her— soon-to-be ex-boyfriend. I swear it's not a spoiler. Like, you know from page one, yeah. they're not going to end up that together. That guy's not sticking around. Yeah. <laughs> so she's coming off of, like, all of these things where she hasn't been talking to her friends. And so she's trying to get ready and hype herself up for this first day of school. And then she sees she's got this facial hair that she hadn't noticed before. And it really throws her off. It sends her into this spiral of, oh, my God, like, how long have I had this facial mm-hmm. hair? And how do I get rid of it? And she totally panics. And I think that that's like a very real reaction to the realization that you're not meeting society's beauty expectations in like yet another category, right? Like there's already so many ways Wit feels like she doesn't check the boxes of beauty, right? Like she's not thin. She's not white. She is queer. Like all of these things. And then now she's adding, great, now I'm growing facial hair. And that is now a thing that I have to deal with in Mm -hmm. my day to day. And I had that same thing. Like, that was one of my symptoms and is one of my symptoms. And there is so much shame, I will say, around facial hair in general, right? Like, I mean, yeah, sometimes we talk about how we have, like, little mustache hairs Mm -hmm. or whatever, like our little chin hairs. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) But it can be so much more for people who have PCOS. Like, sometimes it is a beard or sometimes it's sideburns or it's a lot of hair to deal with. And nobody talks about that. And so it feels very much like you're on your own sort of dealing with these symptoms, even though I think the statistic is something like one in five Mm -hmm. people who have uteruses have PCOS. And so it's a very prevalent and sort of, I guess, quote unquote, common illness, but still one that is couched in so much shame and one that we don't talk about very often. Yeah. And I just want to say too, like a lot of folks do claim their facial hair, are really into their facial hair. Like, that's amazing. Like, we're here for facial hair. Absolutely. Don't want anyone to feel weird about that or othered. But it's part of this whole thing she's going through of feeling out of control in her body. And again, when you're 16 and everything is rough, like, it's a lot. And I also want to reiterate just, like, go team facial hair. Like, you do you. For Wit, it ends up being just this other way that she, like you said, her body feels like it's not hers. And she finds it difficult to sort of deal with on top of all of these other symptoms and all these other ways that her body feels like it's not listening to her. And so I thought that is a kind of an in-your-face way to talk about one of the more common symptoms of PCOS, especially because this illness is something that it really varies for each person. So in the book, there's this long list that Wit has where she talks about all of these different ways that PCOS can manifest in your body. But then she's 
like very clear, like, oh, but it's different for every single person. So you actually have no idea which of these symptoms are going to show up. And that's part of the exhaustion, too, because, you know, as doctors do, they often are like, just lose weight and it'll fix itself. And of course, with PCOS, it's extremely difficult to lose weight. It's just such a frustrating diagnosis and such a frustrating treatment to be given for this diagnosis. Even if it were possible, which it's not for most folks, it seems unrealistic. I live with endometriosis, which also no one really understands it, menstrual condition. All of these menstrual conditions, there's just so much stigma and there's such a lack of knowledge and sensitivity and nuance in how they get talked about. And I think it's just great to have a novel dealing with that right at the edge when a lot of kids are getting these diagnoses and trying to navigate them. That's like really meaningful for me to hear, especially because my diagnosis was 100% like self-diagnosis. Like I had been going to doctors sporadically because I was a fat kid. So very early on, I did not want to go to the doctor. That became a pain point for me. I did not regularly want to see medical professionals. And everyone in my family was also fat. So they were also anti-doctor. And so we weren't really seeing (laughs) doctors regularly. But I knew something was going on with my body around the time I was, you know, 14, 15, 16. And usually people kind of notice it when their periods are kind of all over the place Mm -hmm. and they're not predictable. And that was what was happening with me. And so that was a very clear one. And I ended up just reading one of those magazines like Cosmo Girl Mm -hmm. or YM, one of those magazines. And it was like in the health section, there was this teeny tiny paragraph about this like little known illness that some women can experience. And that was how I found out about it. I like clipped that out and I was like, I have to go to the doctor and talk to them about this illness, this PCOS thing. And then, you know, I had to do a bunch of tests and it turned out to be correct. But I just think, God, if this book can help even like one person, maybe do that self-diagnosis or even just feel less alone in their diagnosis, then that will be, you know, all I can ask for. It gives them something to ask their doctors about to advocate for themselselves. I love that you found it in a teen magazine. You know, I started my career in teen magazines, and I'm like, okay, it wasn't all evil. We did a few good things there. (laughs) You did. You certainly (laughs) did, especially for the families that, like, didn't talk at all. It was like, I had teen magazines, and that was about it. There were a lot of great editors at those magazines who were thinking about how do we get more body literacy in here, you know, in between all of the cover girl ads and bikini body stories. (laughs) Readers like me appreciated that, you know? (laughs) Talk a little more about how you see the PCOS stigma continuing to show up. I feel like there is more familiarity with it now, which I'm very grateful for. But at the same time, the narrative still very much feels the same when it comes to PCOS. I don't want to say that every person out there is still saying like, oh, just lose weight or just blah, 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 and it'll fix itself. But overwhelmingly, that is the advice. I am a fat activist and I am anti-diet culture. And so trying to examine having this illness while also trying not to set myself back in terms of all of this work that I've done to push back on dieting and to try and like, you know, appreciate my body as it is, those two things often feel like they don't go well together at Mm. all. It's, you know, like oil and water. And it's difficult, I think, to find 
specialists who understand that and who are talking about it in that meaningful kind of nuanced way. And let's be honest, a lot of medical advice out there now is from influencers. Mm -hmm. And that's always dicey. How do you navigate finding someone who understands what your illness is, is giving you correct and healthy and safe advice and that isn't trying to do harm or trying to like monetize your illness. That's, I think, a really difficult landscape that we're kind of in right now where people who have been harmed by the medical industry, who've been harmed by doctors, who have dealt with these biases, we are seeking out alternative forms of support, of medicine in general. We're just trying to find some people out there who understand us. And I think that's especially true of, you know, typically issues that people who identify as women end up having like mm -hmm. endometriosis and PCOS. And so we tend to have to find these like pockets of the internet where we feel like we're being talked about and heard in a respectful way. But that also brings up it's these other issues. So it's like, yes, we've made some progress. We're talking about these things now, but also have we really? I think these menstruation-related conditions are really vulnerable to diet culture and wellness culture marketing, right? Because folks yes. struggling with them aren't getting good information from doctors often. They're being dismissed. You know, it can take years to get a diagnosis. And so then, you know, because you're still suffering and struggling, you turn to other sources for information. And, you know, these diets that are geared all around, like supporting your menstrual cycle, the seed cycling of it all, like yeah. all of that stuff. Some of it may be really beneficial to folks, but nobody's really vetting it. People deserve to be heard. And yet the brands and the influencers stepping up and saying, we hear you, we see you, like they aren't necessarily doing anything all that different from what the mainstream doctors are. You know, it's still kind of one size fits all advice about diet and exercise and that kind of thing. Exactly. And I think it's really frustrating and also scary when we think about teenagers or really anybody at any age looking this information up and just being so desperate to find that sense of community, but also knowing who is looking at this information and who's vetting it and who's making sure that we're not causing more harm. I don't have good answers for that. Yeah. So I thought, well, at least I can write a book and talk about this and hopefully raise some awareness around this and have Wit be the kind of person who exists both as someone who has this illness, but who is also anti-diet culture and mm -hmm. who appreciates her body. Oh, I thought you threaded that needle incredibly well. And I was really interested in how you wrote about weight in this book. Because, I mean, like in Fat Chance, Charlie Vega, that very much is Charlie's story of coming to terms with her body, mm -hmm. finding fat politics, finding fat community. You know, with its relationship with her weight, even with the PCOS stuff, it's like a little more in the background in an interesting way. I love the, as she embarks on the relationship that is the big relationship in the book, you know, she never really questions whether he's going to find her attractive. I went back and forth a lot on just how much of a role did I want her weight to kind of play in this, just because weight gain is such a part of PCOS. Right. And I wasn't sure, did I want her to be totally fine with it? Did I want her to be grappling with it? And I ultimately settled on her being kind of matter of fact about it. So when we 
meet her at the beginning. She talks about how, yeah, she has lost weight previously. So she knows kind of what it's like to be on the smaller fat side. And now she also knows what it's like to be on this other side of things. And I thought it was a nice way to be able to talk about some of that small fat privilege Mm -hmm. that we sometimes forget exists. And I'm someone whose weight has been all over the place. So I felt like, oh, I can speak to this from personal experience. And I wanted to talk about how no matter where you are on the spectrum, like it doesn't devalue your existence and how sometimes when we lose weight, we think we've kind of beaten the demons of, oh, I'm cured. Like I'm so much better now and I don't think about fatness and all of this stuff, but really it's just we're thinner and society is nicer to us. You articulated that so well that she was like, I thought I was really all the way there, fat positivity. But it turns out it was just easier to be a size 14. And I was like, oh, damn. Okay, yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I think that a lot of us deal with that. And honestly, I don't blame any of us for feeling that way because it is this huge shift in the world around you, how they see you, how they talk about you, how they think about you, how they think about your body. And so I wanted to get to the heart of that through this character who's just 16, right? And so she's observant, but also kind of self-obsessed, right? So she would be able to see like, oh, my teachers are making comments about my body in ways that Mm. they really should not be doing. And when you're fat, that happens all the time. It's just, it changes the types of comments that you get. You might get a question from a teacher after you're a small fat, like, oh, well, how did you lose the weight? versus, oh gosh, you look different. And you know that that's a coded way of saying like, oh, you got fatter. And so I wanted to explore all of that, which I think I didn't get to do as much in Charlie Vega. And so it was nice to talk about this in kind of a more nuanced way where even when you're fat, there are still levels of fat phobia Mm -hmm. and internalized fat phobia that you deal with and how that can be really tough sometimes. And again, I love Charlie. You know that. You know I'm Team Charlie forever. But I was just like fascinated to see like, oh, Crystal's really evolving this conversation and sort of playing with how she talks about weight through these characters. It's like wherever you are in your journey, you'll hopefully find a character that lines up with how you're feeling, right? So if you're newer to fat activism, then I think Charlie's story is going to be the thing that really gets to the heart and soul of you and what you're going through. But if you've kind of been at this for a bit and you're tired, then wit might be (laughs) more of the character that you're like, yeah, it is exhausting. And I know I'm really attractive, but it doesn't make it any less difficult to deal with everyone else. Okay, I have no good segue for this, but we need to talk about Britney Spears. We just need to. Let's do it. I am so excited, but also so sad because there's almost no fun part of talking about the Britney memoir and just all that has happened to her. It's just... I want to scream from rage, I think, because of how sad and tragic I find her story. So you read the memoir as well, right? Yeah, I listened to it. I listened to Oh, Michelle. I listened to it too. Yeah. Michelle was phenomenal. phenomenal. And yeah. just as an aside, the TikTokers who made the audio version of Michelle Williams' impression of Justin Timberlake saying like, faux shiz, faux shiz. <laughs> oh my God. Shout out to them because <laughs> doing the Lord's work, really doing yes, the Lord's exactly. work. Yes, she nailed that. <laughs> so good. You really felt like you were there on the streets of New York with Justin. 
I could picture it with yes. his little cornrows from back in the oh day. Oh, my God. He's so I know. Mortifi- just mortifying that he exists and walks around in the world. I know. Spies. I am right there with you. So before we talk too much about the memoir, like, tell us, like, when did you become a Britney fan? What's your relationship with Britney? Yes. <laughs> I thought you'd never ask. <laughs> <laughs> So I am a longtime lover of Britney Spears. So I honestly have this weird memory of being in Florida back when Baby One More Time just hit the radio and hearing it on the radio. I was at a flea market with my whole family and I was walking around a tree because I was bored and like done with the day of shopping. And this song came on and I'm like, this is the greatest song I've ever heard. Who is this? And of course, at the time, there's no way to look up. Right, right. You're just like hearing it on the radio. Right. I'm just like, well, I hope I can find out someday who sang that cool song. (laughs) (laughs) And how old are you for this? So I would have been probably around like 10 or 11 around this time. So you're just like a little bit younger than her. Yeah. 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 And so I was just infatuated. And then because in the late 90s, early 2000s, women were told that they had to hate other women, Mm -hmm. I did go through that phase of, oh, never mind, I don't love Britney Spears, even though I'm buying all of her albums and following her (laughs) online and all of her photos. And, you know, I care deeply about what she does, but I don't like her. That would be silly. Yeah. So, you know, I was secretly a huge fan. This was me with the Spice Girls, by the way. What an exhausting time, what right? What an exhausting time. Yes, <laughs> absolutely. So that was where I sort of started with her. But then eventually, I know in high school, I just loved her. I was that person who just was obsessed. I had Britney posters in my room. I tried to, like, I was like, oh, I have a crush on her, but it's just a girl crush, which is Mm. what we used to call Mm -hmm. crushes on girls back in the day. And then it turns out, oh, I'm bi and I just, I love her. I loved her to the point of like making, there was this thing called live journal back in the day where we would journal. And so I would spend hours making icons and layouts (gasps) of Britney Spears. I'm so happy I know this now. Yeah. And for those who don't know, icons are what we now call avatars. But back in the day, it was like you didn't use yourself. You used a celebrity that you really enjoyed. And so that was Britney for me. And so I just adored her. I remember watching her. She was all over MTV. She had, you know, making the videos and behind the scenes, things like that. And she had, do you remember the diary series on MTV? It would be like the diary of so-and-so. Oh, yes. She had one. It was like the Diary of Britney Spears. And talk about diet culture. I remember learning things from her about like learning what the word moderation is. Oh, my God. And I know because back then, it's still a thing now, but especially back then, it was always like, how do you keep yourself so skinny? Totally. Yeah. And she had this monologue where she's like, oh, well, I still eat McDonald's french fries. I just do everything in moderation. And that's how I learned the word moderation oh was because oh I was like, okay, I just have to be like Brittany. And... <laughs> do everything in moderation. P.S. By the way, moderation means like I'm dancing 900 hours a day and uh-huh. my dad doesn't let me eat, but okay. Yes, exactly. It's <laughs> a super sustainable moderation plan for anyone. Things also, we genetics. Know. Like, exactly, exactly. She has skinny white girl jeans. Like, yeah. She totally does. And I mean, good for her. Yeah. But yeah, so I followed her career very extensively, loved her so much. And then sort of there was this huge backlash in life. And I'm sure you recall how sad I think it was and 
scary to kind of watch this happening with her. So she got married a couple of times. Then she got pregnant with this <laughs> with Kevin Federline's baby. And the world was watching and was like, what's going on with the Princess of Pop? Mm-hmm. And it was just like watching this really sad downfall in real time yeah. where she's hounded by the paparazzi. But this is just acceptable. Like, society is weirdly fine with it. Totally fine with it. Yeah, making fun of her body at this point yeah. so much. Like, she, you know, obviously gained weight while growing children and yet has never been fat. But, like, you know, softens a bit. And people are like, oh, my God, Brittany, and all those tabloid photos of her, like, with a yes. frappuccino or whatever. I feel like she got so much hatred and the misogyny that was like thrown at her was so toxic. And I just remember being really influenced by what was being said about her, right? Mm -hmm. And thinking, oh God, if she is fat looking like that, then what does that say about me and like I must be the worst person ever because I enjoy a frappuccino from time to time. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And I just remember taking that commentary around her very personally. She was this cautionary tale of like bodies, but also mental health, like maternal fitness. She was being ripped apart for being a human and being a human in Mm -hmm. what we now know is like pretty appalling circumstances. I mean, I definitely judged her for sure. I was like, well, she just seems like a train wreck and what an irresponsible mother. And, you know, like I totally bought into all of that. And then listening to the memoir, I'm thinking like, oh, you were a terrified young mother. You had no real emotional support. Like literally no one has ever cared about your emotions, Brittany. No, it was impossible to not be swept up in this storm of just judgment and hatred that was sort of being thrown her way. I wasn't sticking up for her. And that was just kind of how the media treated women. I remember a similar thing happening with Mariah Carey and like her quote-unquote mental breakdown and then reading her memoir and also thinking, oh my God, what a terrible time it was to be a woman Mm -hmm. and to be anything less than perfect in the spotlight. And so I just was thinking about just... How symbolic, I think, a lot of what Britney went through showed how society thought of women and how we sort of thought of ourselves and how we managed to come out on the other side. And I think it also speaks to how you can understand, like, people getting into these MLMs that shill these, like, weight loss (laughs) drugs, right? Because it's like, I get it. These people have been told their entire lives that their whole worth was tied up in their body and their looks. And there's, like, two ways you can go. You can become (laughs) an anti-capitalist, anti-diet culture, like, let's burn everything to the ground person. Or you can become oh, no, I have to chase perfection for my whole life. Otherwise, I have no value, right? Oh, man, it is dark. It is really dark. It's so dark. It's so dark. Um, I had so many questions during that memoir. Like, tell me your experience and thoughts. So I'm her age, or I think I'm a year older than her. Mm -hmm. So I never had the Britney worship that you had because I think I was like, I'm trying to be Angela Chase for my so-called life. Like, I'm like so dark and... (laughs) intense and who is this (laughs) fluffy cheerleader pop star you know like I was like that and yet obviously she was still on my radar I knew all her songs like this is you know like (laughs) wasn't actually ignoring her as much as I thought I was it made me realize how much yeah these constructions of femininity 
through these 90s pop stars. I mean, Jessica Simpson's another one. We're really a way of marketing purity culture and, you know, all this, like, she's living with Justin, and yet they're, like, still telling America she's a virgin. (laughs) I know! My friend bought herself one and was like, will you buy one and we can just wear these purity rings together? Oh, Crystal! (laughs) I know. So it was a bad time. Sorry, please continue. No, no, no. I mean, it totally—I get it. Like, I was not sort of actively a part of purity culture, but I still deeply internalized these— good girl, bad girl ideas about sex and what you're supposed to do, all of that. So that was really interesting to realize how much we were all being fed this super toxic narrative. And I do think there's something kind of complicated about the fact that we're now like spending a lot of time like feeling bad about this, you know, white, very successful, marketably beautiful pop star. (laughs) Yes. Uh, Lots of people are growing up in abusive households and being exploited by their parents, and we're not buying their memoirs, and their memoirs aren't narrated by Michelle Williams. Yes, it's true. (laughs) And, like, conservatorships actually have much more negative impacts on, you know, disabled folks and otherwise marginalized people. And so I do sometimes get uncomfortable with, like, how much time do we need to spend interrogating what we did to white women in the 90s, but— I don't know. I think for all of us who lived through the 90s, there is some drama to back there. It was a lot to sit through. It was interesting as a writer to compare the book to what we see, say, on her Instagram today. Like, you can see the presence of the ghostwriters, for sure. The voice in the book. It is often very childlike, but she has, like, this very clear lens on everything in the book. Yep. And then when you follow her on Instagram, you're like, I don't know that the clarity is always there, you know? Like, she's definitely still a person, I would argue, playing out a lot of trauma and mental health crisis. Absolutely. And in need of a lot of support that it's unclear whether she's getting. So that was interesting just to someone who's done some celebrity ghostwriting being like, oh, yeah, I see how you pulled that one together. (laughs) (laughs) See how we cobbled together this this chapter a little bit. I mean, props to the (laughs) ghostwriter. Well, I heard she went through multiple ghostwriters, too. Celebrity ghostwriting is a trip. But yeah, definite props to them for getting a book out of this situation. And I'm with you, too, on she is successful and she's white and she's thin and she's beautiful and all of those things. And so how much do we need to spend the time on it? But then I also think part of it is like justice for the rest of us who weren't those things and still had to deal with a version of that. Of course, not all of us were put in conservatorships, but... I mean, I didn't grow up in a very supportive household. And so there was nothing pushing back against these narratives. And it almost reinforced the idea that like, yeah, if you aren't behaving well, this is what's going to happen to you. And so I think for a lot of us now being able to look back on that and be like, wow, she really went through it is almost giving ourselves permission to admit that we really went through it and it was a really difficult time to just exist. Like, we didn't ask for any of that. It's like, it's almost hard to put into words how big of a celebrity Britney Spears was at the time, but she was everywhere. And so you could not escape it. Like, you couldn't go to the grocery store without seeing a magazine calling Britney fat or Mm -hmm. saying that she was 
you know, a slut or whatever terrible term that they were going to throw out there. For me, I'm like, okay, it wasn't all in my head, right? Like, (laughs) it really was a difficult time to exist. Like, there is a reason that I felt so bad about myself. It wasn't just me. And there were also parts of the memoir that I did find kind of empowering, too. There was like a section where she talks about how when she was stuck in the conservatorship and had to do the Las Vegas residency and she would not do hair flipping. Yes. And it was, I was like, wait, that's actually Yes, <laughs> so I wrote about that badass. for the newsletter. I loved that. They basically owned her at that point. Like she yeah. had to do the shows. She had to wear the outfits. She was being starved on these diets. And she's like, but I will not flip my hair. Like that is my line. Hats off to you, Brittany. Like, good for you. And there is beauty in finding the power that you can take back and making the most of that. That was probably one of my favorite parts. And then my least favorite part was definitely Justin with the guitar when she's having her abortion. I will never get over that. Uh, Well, I knew that would be very satisfying to discuss with you. So thank you. (laughs) And thank you. Clearly, I had a lot of feelings. Very important. All right, so I always end every episode of the podcast with Butter, which is my recommendation segment. Since we are in the holiday season, I thought we could do kind of an expanded Butter segment of recs that are also going to work as gifts. And because you are a young adult novelist, expert on young people, I'm not, obviously, since (laughs) I just said that, (laughs) we're going to focus our recs on gifts for like YA readers, but also like tweens and teens in our life. Because this is a very hard category to shop for, I say, as the mother of a tween. But I did cheat and consult with my 16-year-old niece for ideas. So Lorelai, thank you for helping me prepare for this segment. So my recs are coming to you 16-year-old approved. I love that. And also, I had the great pleasure of meeting Lorelai at your event at RJ Julia. And she's phenomenal. So I'm excited to hear her recommendations. Okay, Freelist, so this is where we leave you. To get all of Crystal's and my teen and tween-friendly butter recs today, you will need to be a paid Burnt Toast subscriber. You can join at the regular or extra butter levels. It starts at just $5 a month. So click the link in your episode description or go to virginiasoulsmith.substack.com to join us. Thanks so much for listening to Burnt Toast. If you'd like to support the show, please subscribe for free in your podcast player and tell a friend about this episode and leave us a rating or review. It really helps folks find the podcast and helps us grow. The Burnt Toast Podcast is produced and hosted by me, Virginia Soul Smith. You can follow me on Instagram at the underscore soulsmith. Our transcripts are edited and formatted by Corinne Fay, who runs at Cell Trade Plus, an Instagram account where you can buy and sell plus-size clothing. The Burnt Toast logo is by Deanna Lowe. Our theme music is by Jeff Bailey and Chris Maxwell. And Tommy Heron is our audio engineer. Thanks for listening and supporting anti-diet body liberation journalism.